This is a crowd podcast. There was a world before Elvis and a world after Elvis. That's what you have to understand. In a blinding flash in the middle of the 1950s, Elvis Presley became more famous faster than anyone in the history of ever. That kind of fame hadn't even been possible before. It was fame on such a scale that Elvis is still famous now, over 70 years later. He's famous amongst people who don't even know his music and don't really have any idea what he became famous for. But show them a quiff, sideburns and a leather jacket and they know exactly who and what it represents. Elvis Presley was the ultimate rags-to-riches story. From Tupelo to Graceland, the truck-driving, guitar-slinging boy who became king. It's a mythic story, the American dream personified in all its glory and its worst excesses. And it killed him, of course it did, because that is what the myth demands. On August the 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley died on a toilet in his mansion, unhappy, obese, and drugged up to his eyeballs. But there's another Elvis, fixed forever in a bright flash of youth and beauty. You know the one. So handsome, so charismatic, so free. He set the world on fire. Elvis was, and is to this very day, the best-selling solo artist in pop history. That's right, bigger than Michael Jackson or Madonna. Elton John and Eminem don't even come close. Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift? Don't make me laugh. Worldwide, Elvis Presley is the only artist to sell over a billion records. A billion! You can find that version of Elvis on everything from coffee mugs to bed linen, t-shirts to tattoos. Elvis, the supernaturally gifted catalyst for the 20th century's rock and roll revolution. Twist the prism though, and Elvis becomes a metaphor for American innocence, corrupted and destroyed. A talent that laid waste to itself. The bloated symbol of a fast food nation. The original Burger King. The end was tragic. But the beginning, wow. Let's go back to the beginning. A Saturday afternoon in 1953, Elvis Aaron Presley is an 18-year-old delivery guy, fresh out of high school, driving a Ford truck for the Crown Electric Company in Memphis, earning $42 a week. Elvis loves music, he was practically raised at gospel revival meetings where preachers summon the Spirit of the Lord. He plays acoustic guitar and sings around the house all hours. He listens to the radio, spends hours in record stores, loves country and swing and pop for sure, anything with a melody. But unlike most white kids in the segregated South, what Elvis really loves is the raucous backbeat heavy rhythm and blues. It's music you only hear on black stations or in black bars for black audiences. They call them race records, but Elvis digs black music. He dresses loud and flashy like the black kids. Pink suits, blue suede shoes, hair styled up greasy with sideburns. Sometimes he hangs out on Beale Street where the black musicians go and he watches and he learns. His doting mother, Gladys, loves to hear Elvis sing. And Mama's birthday's coming up and Elvis thinks he might spend $4 of his hard-earned pay cutting a do-it-yourself record as a birthday surprise. 
So Elvis stops by the offices of Sun Records, a local label owned by a producer called Sam Phillips. Now, it so happens that Sam Phillips used to say, if he could find a white man who had that black voice, he could make a billion dollars. And in walks Elvis. The lady at reception who takes the money asks this handsome teenager what he sounds like. Well, ma'am, says Elvis, I don't sound like nobody. And the rest is pop history. Something happened in Sun Studios 1954 that tipped pop music on its axis. It was the big bang moment for rock and roll. Now, there are musicians who have every reason to dispute that Elvis was the original rocker. Black musicians like Ike Turner, Fats Domino and Sister Rosetta Tharp were forging something new and exciting out of the blues. Chuck Berry and Little Richard were yet to make records, but they were on the circuit, playing pounding, driving, hollering songs like nothing you'd hear in respectable society. And yeah, it's true, Elvis was white, and that counted for everything in a racially divided America. Elvis was the one with the keys to the kingdom. But the moment Elvis got on the mic... He brought something new to the party. You can hear it happen. His three-piece band are plodding through country blues when he snaps. Hold it, fellas. That don't move me. Let's get real. Let's get real, real gone for a change. The kid starts thrashing his acoustic guitar. The old pros jump in. And this weird new rockabilly sound comes racing out with Elvis hiccuping, jiving, voice flying up and down. He's laughing. He's whooping. Well, that's all right, Mama. There's pure joy in those recordings. It's the sound of liberation, sex, freedom. And the world heard it. And then the world saw it. Elvis is on the road, touring the south, swinging his hips, bouncing all over the stage, gyrating like a hound dog in heat. They call him the Memphis Flash. They call him Elvis the Pelvis. I can't help it. That's all Elvis has to say about that lip-curling, hip-swivelling, jumping jive. I hear the music and i got to move. Newspapers call him vulgar. They call him a threat to public decency. The public, though, can't get enough. Everywhere Elvis goes, girls are screaming. The boys gawp, open-mouthed, not sure whether to beat him up or join his fan club. Fights break out at Elvis concerts. Things are spinning out of control. Some punks firebomb his car. So his manager hires a police guard to protect his asset. And that, right there, is the start of the cocoon. The ever-present security that will, year upon year, build a wall around the boy king and cut Elvis off from the world. But we're not there yet. Because the rocket's accelerating and everyone's hanging on for dear life. The manager is a sweet-talking carnival hookster who styles himself as Colonel Tom Parker. Now, most managers are on maybe 20 or 25%. Colonel Tom's on 50. Half of everything Elvis earns goes into his baggy suit pockets. And some would say he earns it. When he talks RCA records into buying out Elvis's contract with Sun and the big money starts pouring in, Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Be Cruel, Hound Dog, Everything Elvis touches turns to gold records. So Elvis gets a gold suit. Hell, he gets a gold-plated Cadillac. Then they put him on TV. They have to shoot from the waist up so they don't offend viewers of a nervous disposition. 
60 million people tune in to The Ed Sullivan Show in September 1956. It's the biggest television audience there's ever been. Over 80% of America watch the top half of Elvis swivelling and jiggling. Then he bats his long eyelashes, curls his lip and croons Love Me Tender, and the world goes into meltdown. Because the world was ready, it was primed, the fuse was burning. It was a new era of global telecommunication. There were satellites in space and cables under the sea. Music was being fired up with electrification, amplification. There was a post-war baby boom and a post-war economic boom. And then it all came down to a wop bop a loo bop a wop bam boom Before Elvis, there was nothing. That's what John Lennon said. After Elvis, there's a world we all grew up in. A world of hyper-connected pop mania, where the energy and obsessions of youth take centre stage. The rock era. And Elvis is king. It's a silly nickname a reporter gives him. The king of rock and roll. But it sticks. Because Elvis is right on the crest of a tsunami of change. Immaculate and imperial. Hearing Elvis for the first time was like bursting out of jail. Bob Dylan said that. Elvis is the greatest cultural force in the 20th century. Leonard Bernstein said that. Elvis Presley is a weapon in the American psychological war. The Russians said that. But let's take a step back and think about what it's like to be at the centre of that kind of mania. To be public enemy number one and the fantasy figure of every kid on the planet when all you wanted to do was sing. Elvis grew up poor, really white trash, dirt poor. He was born in Tulsa in January 1938, in the aftermath of a devastating national depression. It was hard, hard times for everyone. We were broke, man, broke. That's how Elvis recalls it. Elvis had a twin, Jesse, who was stillborn. Some people think his ghostly brother haunted Elvis all his life. But what it really did was make him a precious only child doted over by Gladys. Vernon Presley, Elvis's daddy, was a labourer and a truck driver, doing whatever it took to get by. He spent a little time in jail, six months for check forgery. The Presleys lost their house. And so in 1948, they loaded up what they had and moved to Memphis. Elvis was 13, an outsider, a bit of a loner, but a much-loved child who always had the music in him, like a supernatural force. From the time I was a kid, I knew something was going to happen to me. That's what Elvis would say. It was a feeling the future was bright. So that's Elvis, in the first white heat of stardom in 1957, where he gives his folks $100,000 and asks them to find him a place to call his own. It adds up to around a million dollars today. Elvis is 22 years old, and he's got the keys to a 14-acre estate in his adopted city of Memphis, Tennessee. It's called Graceland, and that's where Elvis lives for the rest of his life, surrounded by his family and his entourage and his gold cars and his gold records. A king in his palace. And that's where he dies, 20 years later. Isolated, obese and with enough drugs in his bloodstream to stock a pharmacy. Let's talk about the drugs. When did this start? How about right at the beginning, 
travelling hundreds of miles between one-night stands all over the south in a Chevrolet Bel Air, popping benzodrine, amphetamine and caffeine concentrates to keep going. They were all at it. Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent. Speed was the drug of choice to keep rock and roll on the road. It wasn't a big deal, just a little something on the side. Uppers to keep you going, downers to help you sleep. And widely available in drugstores for any red-blooded American who needed a pick-me-up. But here's the thing. Elvis hated drugs. That's right. Elvis thought drugs were the scourge of America. Elvis didn't mess with marijuana. And he didn't snort cocaine. Heroin? Don't even think about it. Elvis was a clean-living, well-mannered, good old southern boy, and he had the doctor's script to prove it. At the end of his days, Elvis had medical prescriptions for Dilaudid, Percodan, Placidil, Dexedrine, Bifetamine, Tuinol, Desbutol, Escatrol, Amobarbital, Quaaludes, Carbritol, Carbritol, Secanol, Methadone and Ritalin. It was all perfectly legal. There was no reason for Elvis to think he was doing anything wrong and no one willing to tell him any different because Elvis is the king. And who's going to say no to the king? For 20 years, Elvis sits on his throne, surrounded by his court, and he does pretty much whatever he damn well pleases. In Graceland, Hollywood and Vegas, behind high walls and closed doors, Elvis parties with his boys. They call them the Memphis Mafia, a tight-knit circle of old friends, first cousins, and trusted security. It's a life of luxury, of drugs and booze and guns and girls, and as long as the money keeps rolling in, everything's golden. And Colonel Tom Parker makes sure the money keeps rolling in, because the Colonel has a vision. He thinks rock and roll is a fad. He wants his boy to be an all-round family entertainer, By 1958, the first wild streak of rebellion is over. Elvis is drafted into the US Army. The colonel doesn't ask for a deferral, no sir. He thinks it's good for the brand. Everyone loves a man in uniform. When Elvis shows up for service, the press are there to watch an army barber shave off that big, beautiful quiff. There are still some people who'll tell you that's the day rock and roll died. For two years, Elvis is stationed in Germany. By day, Elvis has light duties, helped along by a sergeant who shares his appetite for pharmaceuticals. By night, Elvis lives in a hired house with the Memphis Mafia. It's starlets, strippers and after-house parties. No GI blues for the king. And then his mother, Gladys, has a heart attack. And Elvis is granted emergency leave. He's at her hospital bedside. She's been struggling with a weight for years. She's got hepatitis and cirrhosis. Two days later, she's gone. Elvis is devastated. She's all I ever lived for, he says. She was always my best girl. He's buried next to her now, at Memphis Forest Hills Cemetery. Gladys was 46 when she died. Elvis didn't even make it that far. He was just 42. But Elvis finds himself a new best girl in the army. Priscilla Bewley is the stepdaughter of a US Air Force officer. She's gorgeous, radiant, with long black hair, doll-like features. She's also 14 years old, 
and dating the most famous man in the world. In 1960, it's a new decade and a new Elvis. He returns to the States to pick up his career. Hollywood is calling, and that's where Colonel Tom sees the money flowing. Elvis commands a million dollars a script, with spin-off soundtracks to keep him in the charts. And if Elvis's fee eats up the budget, that's all right. They shoot him fast and cheap, and they turn a sweet profit. All Elvis has to do is show up, learn his lines and curl his lip, and, more often than not, sleep with the leading lady. Nancy Sinatra, Anne-Margaret, Natalie Wood, Amy Van Doren, Sybil Shepherd, and Cher are amongst those whispered to have spent quality time with the King. Meanwhile, Priscilla turns 18 and moves into Graceland, where she's primed for the role of Queen. They marry in 1967. Priscilla is 21, Elvis is 32, and he's about to get the shock of his life. It's 1968. A TV producer is trying to sell Elvis a comeback show, and Elvis is outraged. I mean, how dare he? Elvis doesn't need to make a comeback. He's never been away. His movies, inflation adjusted, have made over two billion US dollars worldwide. In Hollywood, they still call him the king. The king of the quickies. So the TV producer challenges Elvis to cross a busy road from the TV studio on Sunset Strip in the beating heart of LA and to stand in front of a place called the Classic Cat just to see what happens. And what happens is absolutely zilch. People walk right on by. Nobody stops. Not a soul. Nobody recognises Elvis. Or if they do, they just don't care. It's almost at the end of the decade. Those kids unleashed by Elvis, they picked up guitars, grew their hair even longer and made the 60s swing. The Beatles, The Stones, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, the rock revolution Elvis started just kept on rolling and left Elvis behind. So Elvis gets the band back together. Scotty Moore on guitar, DJ Fontana on drums. He squeezes into an outfit to rival the new Lizard King, Jim Morrison. Black hair, black jacket, black jeans, black boots. That's what the king of rock and roll is supposed to look like. Elvis is back, baby. No more movies. Now it's jumpsuits, a big rocking band, karate kicks, private planes flying from arena to arena. It's the world's first global satellite concert, Aloha from Hawaii, airing in 40 countries, seen by over a billion people worldwide. It's Las Vegas, two shows a night, seven days a week, 636 nights of Elvis in the flesh. Because live is Colonel Tom's new money train, and it's rattling down the tracks, and it never stops. Almost 1,500 shows. That's how many Elvis plays. More than a show every other night for the last eight years of his life. And when he's not on stage, he's in the studio. He's got a three-album-a-year deal with RCA. Three albums a year. There's gospel albums, soul albums, country albums, Christmas albums... And if the hard-touring, hard-partying king can't find the time to get to the studio, then the studio will come to him. They park the recording trucks at Graceland. But it's taking a toll. 
and everyone can see it. His marriage breaks up. After years of putting up with the womanising, his queen runs off with her karate instructor. A man Elvis chose to teach Priscilla his favourite martial art. Now it doesn't matter who you are, and that's got to hurt. His weight is ballooning. Elvis always had a soft spot for southern fried food, and now he can't get enough. Burgers piled high, ice cream at midnight, wash it all down with Pepsi Cola and Quaaludes. His favourite is a legendary sandwich they call Fool's Gold. They make it at this one restaurant in Denver, Colorado. A whole loaf of bread filled with a whole jar of peanut butter, a whole jar of grape jelly and a pound of bacon. One night, Elvis herds the Memphis Mafia onto his private jet and flies 800 miles from Graceland to Denver, buys 30 Fool's Gold sandwiches and spends two hours devouring them, washed down with champagne. Then they all fly home. That's the kind of thing you can do when you're the king. That's the kind of thing you can do when nobody tells you how crazy you're acting. Like the time in 1970, Elvis flies to the White House for a meeting with President Nixon, high as a kite, wearing a purple cape and jeweled chains. Elvis has a request. He wants to be made a special agent at large for the FBI. Elvis wants to fight the war on drugs. So President Nixon dishes out a federal narcotics badge, all for a handshake and a photo op. Nobody says no to the king. Elvis loves that badge. He says it gives him power to legally enter any country wearing guns and carrying drugs. We're in a whole new world of crazy now. Sitting in hotel rooms with windows blacked out, shooting up TV screens. Firing rifles around the house when he wants attention. His weight is out of control, and even the drugs can't keep it down. Between 1973 and 77, Elvis puts on over 100 pounds. He doubles in size. He's hospitalised for exhaustion, twice. At least, that's what they call it. Truth is, he's overdosing. In 1973, Elvis spends three days in a coma. He has his own personal physician, a man they call Dr Nick. He's the medical professional tasked with keeping him healthy. Yeah, right. In the first eight months of 1977, Dr George Constantine Nicopolis prescribes over 10,000 doses of amphetamines, barbiturates, narcotics, tranquilizers, sleeping pills, laxatives and hormones for Elvis. He has glaucoma, high blood pressure, liver damage and enlarged colon. He suffers from debilitating constipation. His gut has seized up. Still, he's touring. He's out there singing, as if the songs are the only thing keeping him going. Songs like American Trilogy, a medley of the folk and gospel Elvis was raised on, the songs where it all started. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. You know your daddy was bound to die. Sing it, Elvis. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. Some nights, Elvis forgets lyrics. He loses his place and he just babbles. He makes jokes. He makes up new words to songs he's sung a thousand times. He loses his voice and lets the backing singers take over. He cancels concerts. He cuts shows off early. Sweat pours out of his giant body, buckets of it, and he wipes his face with scarves, then tosses them to the audience, 
where fans fight over a precious gift from the king like it's a religious sacrament. He's bloated, slurry, stumbling around the stage. And still the people come. Is it rock and roll or a freak show? Elvis Presley plays his last concert on June the 26th, 1977 in Market Square Arena, Indianapolis for a crowd of 18,000 people. He looks pale and weak, but he throws the poses. He hits the notes. He's touching hands, taking the applause. And then he's gone. And the announcement sounds, as it always does, at the end of every show. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Elvis dies six weeks later. The end, when it comes, is about as undignified as it can be. Sitting on a toilet in his mansion, stuffed and bloated, Elvis suffers a massive heart attack. He's found face down on the floor, gold pyjama bottoms around his ankles, a pool of vomit on the thick piled bathroom carpet. A coroner's report reveals Elvis has 14 different drugs in his system. Graceland was filled with people, as it always was. His daughter, Lisa Marie, was there, his daddy Vernon, his latest girlfriend Ginger, a nurse, an aunt, some of the Memphis boys. But in the only way that matters, Elvis might as well have been alone. Elvis died from excess. He died from success. The most famous man the world had ever seen, overdosed on fame. And even after he was gone, his fame kept growing. There are tours of Graceland, posthumous albums, exhibitions, memorabilia, paraphernalia, books, films, posters, toys, statues, watches, mugs, clothes, and just about any piece of branded Elvis tat you can imagine. There's an Elvis chapel in Vegas where you can be married by an ordained Elvis impersonator. Elvis has been top five in the highest earning dead celebrities since Forbes Business Magazine started keeping count. He makes more money now than when he was alive. You know what Colonel Tom Parker said about the death of Elvis Presley? The world's first rock star, the client whose interests he was supposed to serve. He said, it was a good career move. There's a two-word slogan you'd see in here for decades after Elvis died, on t-shirts and graffiti. Elvis lives. Two magic words that still conjure up a look, a shake, a boyish grin, a suit that stands up by itself, a battered guitar and a voice hollering and whooping and sailing into infinity. Because the era of liberation and change Elvis heralded is still here. We're still a part of it. Still riding the mystery train. The king is dead. Elvis lives. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Neil McCormick and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we used Elvis by Albert Goldman. Elvis, the complete illustrated record by Roy Carr and Mick Farron. Elvis Presley, in his own words, by Mick Farron. Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley, and Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley, both by Peter Goralnik as well as Neil McCormick's own articles. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. But if you want some Elvis, here are three songs to search for. Mystery Train, from the original Sun Recordings, The Birth of Rock and Roll, American Trilogy, from Aloha from Hawaii, 
and long black limousine, which isn't as well known, but it's a gem. We're putting a Death of a Rockstar playlist together on Spotify, so you can follow that. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, subscribe and leave us a nice review. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, in off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.